Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live lives that unleash just a little bit more courage so that we're able to love the hell out of this world. Or hells, maybe I'll put plural on that today. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I'm grateful to be joining you on this episode where we are diving into our series, Time Management for Mortals. And this comes from a uh, book, the title is comes from a book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Blickman, who was a time management guru, wrote columns for syndicated newspapers, all about all of the hacks and the ways to deal uh, with your time to be more efficient. And um, he realized after basically a career of telling people how to use their time that he, well, he didn't do it well. Uh, and that he was selling people a bill of false goods. And instead of something that would really transform their lives, he was actually kind of filling it up with more and more stuff that was less and less important. And so he wrote this book as kind of a confession, but also an invitation to embrace the fundamental finitude, the finiteness of our human lives as a way for us to, or as a kind of foundational prism to look at our lives. And so that's what we're kind of exploring this series. Now today, we're going to hear from Reverend Gretchen. She is preaching on the 125th anniversary of Foothills Unitarian Church, this congregation that birthed this podcast um, that has been around in northern Colorado since 1898. And 125 years, especially for a church in the West, is a really long time. A lot of people are often rather, um, you know, surprised that we have been around for such a long time. But even back then, in 1898, we were a community that was kind of striking itself, uh, striking out on its way um, against the current. And I want to read you just a little bit of the words of the mission statement of the church back in 1898, when 37 people gathered in the Oddfellas Hall to create this institution that we are a part of now. They said, it shall be the object of this church to develop the church of humanity, democratic in organization, progressive in spirit, aiming at the development of pure and high character, hospitable to all forms of thought, cherishing the spiritual traditions of the past, but keeping itself open to all new light and higher development of the future. What a beautiful, beautiful articulation of who we are, or who we were, but also who we are today. Now, Gretchen is picking up our questions of time and beginning to explore it as we think about history. We are, of course, people of history. And so how we relate to the past helps us think about how we live today. And so on this occasion of our 125th anniversary, Gretchen is preaching about the hopefulness that we can find in history, which, of course, is complicated because of the ways that violence and, and pain and degradation exists in history for many of us, but also more so for some of us, depending on our, our ancestors and what they experienced. And so Gretchen is going to preach on the ways that history can be a resource for us, but also a launching pad for, for a different way of life. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Like a lot of people, maybe a few of you, I watched the drama play out in the U.S. House this week with just a little bit of shock and maybe not so little amount of, I think the word is 
Schadenfreude. When they hit the 11th vote, I called my mom, who is a self-described C-SPAN junkie, not just in these high drama moments. I wanted to know what she was thinking about all of this. I kind of, I admit, expected a sort of serves you right Kevin McCarthy kind of attitude. But instead, she expressed only grief for the dysfunctional state of our democracy and even more for the concessions McCarthy made along the way. See, over time, I've realized that my mother, she takes the far right's power personally. She hears their anti-democratic and anti-Semitic statements and can't help but think of her father, who fought in World War II, and whose life, and therefore her life, was upended by all he saw there. The only way that their family came to make sense of that upending was the belief that he had done his part to ensure the end of fascism and anti-Semitism and the triumph of democracy once and for all. See, like a lot of us, my mother and my grandfather, they got caught up in one of our biggest misconceptions about the way time works, which is the idea of inevitable forward movement. As if once something has shifted, it will keep shifting in that same direction, or that that thing that's once done will stay done, that lessons once learned will stay learned, that we will, as we tend to say after in the immediate aftermath of some great tragedy, that we will never forget as if time works like a fairy tale, where at the end we could declare they lived happily ever after. In reality, we actually do know, as writer Rebecca Solnit says, history is not an army marching forward. It's more like a crab scuttling sideways which means that often the best way to know what will happen in the future is to look at what happened in the past. Scholars call this idea historic recurrence, although most of us would just say history tends to repeat itself. Over decades and centuries, it turns out we do forget, or really we fail to pass along hard-won lessons often because the trauma of the time makes it really hard for us to stay with the stories for too long. I mean, for as much as my mom absorbed about his time in Germany, there was a limit to how much my grandfather would ever be able to share. It's just, just too painful. He didn't want people to forget, but also he had to find a way to move on. So over time, this limit to what's shared of the difficult stories and lessons from the past makes those stories feel less like they they apply to our actual real lives and more like kind of the stereotypical experience of the two-dimensional textbook. It's hard to forget, hard to never forget things that we don't truly ever know. 
Now, at the same time, regardless of whether we remember or not, history also repeats itself because there are things about human behavior that are kind of predictable. Given similar circumstances and stressors, even when transplanted across cultures and centuries, revolutions emerge and resolve with remarkable consistency. Conflicts play out over land and resources. Should I change out my microphone? Seems like I should. I think I can. Okay, I'm switching. Thank you. Green? Hello. And no feedback, right? Much better. So these conflicts, over time, they play out over land and resources and religion again and again. Families struggle and triumph and grief and rage and love in the human life echo across all history as any Shakespeare play or Greek tragedy will quickly make clear. Now, churches, we have our own idea, version of this idea. One of my seminary professors used to say that it's kind of like it's the story that lives in the walls. What she meant is that when a person arrives in a congregation, there's always a story that immediately starts speaking to them, even if they don't happen to show up for the first time on the 125-year anniversary Sunday. There are patterns and habits and norms in every community that just by arriving, you are impacted by. And you are already impacting. Not unlike how it happens in families, patterns in churches repeat over generations, even when the people who are repeating the behavior don't directly know each other. It's one of the first lessons that religious professionals learn, that is, that when you're facing something challenging in a congregation, you should ask, when in the congregation's history has something like this happened before? Because almost always there is something being repeated, a lesson not fully known, a habit caught unwittingly in the congregational DNA. As Unitarian Universalist theologian Rebecca Parker says, we inherit covenant before we make covenant. So I came to our newly published history book thinking about all of these things already. But even if I hadn't, it wouldn't have taken long in reading it to see the patterns that we repeat. For example, the moments over the last 125 years when the community decided to build or expand the church building. You heard some of this earlier, but there's a lot, there's a lot more to say and a lot more than I'll even be able to cover here. Um, I really do encourage you to read the book to find all of the lessons, but just a few of them now. So the first moment was in those first just five years after the founders signed that charter. So this was in 1903. In those first five years, they had six different ministers but they really never had enough money to keep any of them. They'd get them started, and then they couldn't pay them. They'd get them started, then they couldn't pay them. And then in that moment, that moment of back and forth instability, they decided right then to purchase land and build that building on Mulberry College. So they stayed in that building 
And with a partnership with the Congregationalists, they, they found some stability over the next six decades. That is, until the, in the creation of the UCC, when the Congregationalists decided to join that United Church of Christ. And then in 1961, the Unitarians and Universalists consolidated to form the Unitarian Universalist Association. So those two moves, combined with the conflicts that arose around the Vietnam War and other cultural pressures of the 60s, led some in the group to leave for the more explicitly Christian UCC and for others to simply leave, period. Those who remained decided to affiliate with the UUA. And then right in the midst of this, their minister began preaching about, some of you will know this phrase, transcendental meditation. It was um, controversial, but then also he went on to encourage and then himself practice open marriage, also controversial and ultimately led to his own misconduct and resignation in 1968. They took that moment to purchase land and build a building, the one we are in right now. Now, somehow they made it through that time, eventually hired a minister, and over the next three decades, again, found stability and growth. So much so they knew they needed to expand the church. And by now, I should say more accurately, not just they, but you. Some of you were here in the 90s. From what I can tell in this expansion, you slash they uh, managed to vary the pattern somewhat because construction happened in 1997 and then the unrest didn't come for another 18 months or so, although it was still a lot all at once. And the church attempted to navigate the transit as the church attempted to navigate transition in the children's religious education programs. But they and you did navigate this and stability returned for at least a little while. But the community always knew that the expansion of the 90s was about half of what they actually needed. And so the church and the church continued to grow. So it went that in 2022, not yet fully on the other side of the global pandemic and what some consider the greatest disruption to church life in over 100 years, the people of the Foothills Unitarian Church, that's you, broke ground on construction that will double the size of its current building. Yeah. <laughs> So we use the word audacious to describe some of these moments earlier, but I'm guessing along the way, some other words were used. I don't know, foolish, maybe? Irresponsible? What the heck were we thinking? to be in the midst of the most challenging times and decide repeatedly not to pull back or even to put things on hold, but instead to make a big investment in a greater future. The word I would use is faithful. I know it's not a word we tend to use about ourselves all that much, but what else would you use? to describe such irrational choices in a bunch of people who think of themselves mostly as committed rationalists. It could only be a deep faithfulness to serve a greater vision born in a bold imagination 
that despite all current evidence indicating otherwise, a greater purpose continued to exist. A greater truth, a greater love to believe that somehow when we commit ourselves to working together on behalf of this vision, somehow, as Parker Palmer would say, way will open. When we talk about history repeating itself, often we focus on the painful patterns, the pitfalls. But alongside the tales of trauma, there are always these habits of hope. This way of acting on behalf of goodness and joy and love over and over and over. Habits that are cultivated and passed on generation to generations. Habits that are our inheritance too. And it is from this inheritance that courageous love finds a way to break through again and again and again. For example, for all the talk about Kevin McCarthy this week, I've been thinking just as much about Hakeem Jeffries. Right? So Jeffries, he was elected 15 times, in fact, as the first Black lawmaker to lead a congressional party. His election is a reminder that alongside the painful rise of the far right, there remains also the resilient resistance. This pattern of working for progress and justice that is also being played out again. This still beating heart of hope. Both are our history and our inheritance and therefore both have the potential to repeat and repeat and repeat across our own and our great-great-grandchildren's and far beyond lifetime. History is not an army, Rebecca Solnit writes. It's a crab scuttling sideways. She goes on, a drift of a drip of soft water wearing away stone, an earthquake breaking centuries of tension. Sometimes, she says, one person inspires a movement, or her words do, decades later. Sometimes a few passionate people change the world. Sometimes they start a mass movement and millions do. Sometimes those millions are stirred by the same outrage or the same ideal and change comes like a change of weather. All these transformations have in common is that they begin in imagination, in hope. To hope is to bet on the future, on the possibility that an open heart and uncertainty are better than gloom and safety. But hope is not like a lottery ticket that you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. Hope is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency because hope should shove you out the door. Hope just means another world might be possible, not promised, not guaranteed. Anything could happen. And whether or not we act has everything to do with it. The good news, friends, is that all we have to do is trust that the best predictor of the future is what has happened in the past. And be the people that these walls 
and soon those walls teach us to be faithful people, people who are willing to risk hoping. And by that, I mean acting on behalf of a world transformed by the resilient power of courageous love. What they dreamed be ours to do. Hope their hopes and seal them true. History scuttles sideways and crab-like back and forth, making progress and retreating, advancing and returning, and all of us are beach dwellers, each of us caught in the cycles of history, the ways that we return again and again to the wounds of past trauma, but also the habits of hope, the resources for resilience. As I was listening to Gretchen's sermon, I just had this deep sense of both gratitude to be able to live and to have received life with some of those habits of hopes, but also the deep responsibility to pass on that beating heart of hope to the people that we'll call us ancestors. And that's really the kind of prayer that I want to invite us to end with. Spirit of life, we come into this life without choosing, without choosing this gift that is filled with both joy and suffering, this tangled blessing that is our lives. May we keep the heart of hope alive. May we be good, faithful stewards of our ancestors' legacy. May we heal the pain and live into a deeper resilience, for we have a power to choose. And may we be grateful for all of the people who will come next next month, next year, next decade, even next century, who will pick up our unfinished dreams and incomplete work. May we be faithful and audacious in their dreaming. Thanks so much for listening. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Next week, we are going to be hearing from Eleanor Van Dusen, our director of family ministry, on her experience going to the Living Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and the ways that time and race and racism come together and invite us to chart a different course. Once again, as always, so grateful for you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.